Hi, this is Olivia Fox with the Autistic Advantage Podcast. In this inaugural episode, we're chatting with Eric Garcia, Washington Bureau Chief for the Independent and author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Please note that this podcast is uncensored, so there will be swearing. Eric, I'm super excited to be talking to you because um, I read, of course, We're Not Broken, the book that you published on a new vision, really, of autism in the workplace. And I am thrilled that we have you uh, on the podcast. We're going to talk about how autistics, of course, the word, the work world needs to change, but autistics can already succeed in the business world as it is right now. I mean, the question is, I mean, I mean, the question is, yes, they can. I mean, obviously, I've, I've worked and there's there's plenty of autistic people who can work, the, you know, you know, but the question is, uh, how well can they do it? Uh, so, so I think one of the things that I've noticed was fascinating was like almost every um, late diagnosed autistic person I knew uh, had almost kind of the same exact story, which is they kind of milled through a lot of jobs. Uh, you know, sometimes they were they joined the military or, 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 you know, they were used car salesmen and then they, you know, and then they wound up going to grad school. And then now they're a professor of physics at Vanderbilt. That's one guy who I interviewed in, in, uh, in the book. His name is Dave Caudell, who now runs uh, the Frist Center over at Vanderbilt University, uh, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And then there are plenty of people who were dropouts, uh, you know, or had trouble in school, and then somehow they wound up, you know, starting their own companies. Or, 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 or you know, I think you're, you obviously see a lot of see, see a lot of companies like um, uh, Microsoft doing autism hiring programs, Ford doing hiring programs. I think the idea, uh, the, the concept of like tech companies just doing these is, is kind of outdated at this point. I think you're seeing companies like Ford do it, um, and you see financial companies like UBS doing it, and and EY doing it. Um, that being said, okay, with all that being said, I think we are still um, the type of autistic person who can be employed is still um, very limited and very narrow. Or the ones who, I guess, or we, we tend to think of um, the autistic people who are quote unquote not as high functioning, you know, and, and I hate that phrase a lot. We often think of them as only capable of doing things that you know literally require some minimum wage that that are literally paid some minimum wage labor, um, which is you know just unconscionable. Um, some states are doing some states are, are, are getting rid of some minimum wage labor, red and blue states, I should say. Uh, but but you, you know the fact of the matter is is that it's still federal law that you can pe- pay people below minimum wage. Uh, on top of that, I think that what we're seeing is that a lot of these um, autism hiring initiatives. While they're getting a lot of people in the door, and that's a good thing, um, there isn't a question about retention. I think there is this misconception that autistic people are happy to stay in the same job for 20, 30 years, which is ridiculous. Nobody's happy doing it. You know, uh, my, my stepdad, like right before the pandemic, he retired from, um, from AT&T. He worked there for 30 years. And he didn't have the same job you know, for 30 years, you know, uh, you know, why would we expect an autistic person to do that? So I think that that's one of the other things. And I think on top of that, while a lot of these are very well-intentioned, um, they don't, these programs often don't seek the input of their autistic employees. And whether you know it or not, you have autistic employees. I think that's, that's something really important to, to get employers to understand is you already have autistic employees, guaranteed. And, and I think that's, the, that's the, the important question is that if you don't, you know, if you say, we don't have enough autistic employees where if they do, they don't tell us. And I'm like, oh, what did I say about you? You know? Yes. 
what does it say about you that your uh, employees are afraid to disclose? Um, and what do you need to change? What do you need to change about the culture to um, to make uh, to make your employees feel more willing to um, disclose or more comfortable disclosing? We have, as you know, uh, quite a few questions that have come in from our uh, listeners. So the broadest one, and I, I know this is quite a broad one, but how has being on the spectrum impacted your life and your career? Uh, oof, I mean, how does it? How is it not? I mean, uh, that, that's that's I think the important question. I think that um, and absolutely. I mean, I think there's this you know this common trope of like don't uh, you know autism doesn't define you. No, like like don't let autism define you. No, it absolutely defines. It absolutely defines what kind of journalist I am. It absolutely defines what kind of friend I am. What kind of um, what kind of when, I, when I'm in a relationship, what kind of boyfriend I am. I'm single right now. Uh, you know what kind of son I am. What kind of brother I am. Um, it, it absolutely governs a lot of things. I think that one of the things that I think about is that I don't think so. So on some ends, you know, yeah, it absolutely does limit. I'll be completely honest. You know, I'll be honest, uh, like, so for example, I can't drive a car. So there's a reason why I live in a city. There's a reason I live in Washington, D.C. That limits me in a lot of places that I can travel for going on reporting trips. Um, you know, that means these places have to have cabs or Ubers or, or, or I have to live in big cities, you know. Um, I would love to, like, you know, I've, I've said, like, if I had my brothers, I would buy a, a, a farm in North Carolina and uh, I went to college in North Carolina, so like I, I would love to buy like a farm in North Carolina or a farm just outside of Tennessee, and and, and kind of you know write and, and, and live my life there. But that's just not a, that's not a possibility. So, uh, so so that absolutely does. And I think the other thing is that it, it, you know I often also have to take into account. You know, we were talking about uh, I was covering CPAC earlier last month. Um, you know, I had to take sensory breaks a lot, and when I'm on Capitol Hill, I have to take sensory breaks. I have to go to the basement uh, a lot, and like. Uh, you know, um, make sure that I recalibrate. A, a lot of times when I'm, you know, when I'm doing what a lot of journalists do, I have to work the phones. You know, I have to take like a five-minute break after I, especially if it's a very taxing interview, like when I'm interviewing or talking to sources. But yeah, I got to do that. And then, and then sometimes, you know, if you have stacked interviews back to back to back. So like, you know, when the, um, uh, earlier this year, when there was the, um, the speaker fight, uh, you know, there's, there were days where I would, you know, be talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Then, you know, oh, uh, Scott Perry is walking by. I got to catch Scott Perry. And then, oh, but then I need to get some Democrats to talk to. So, oh, so I need to talk to Adam Schiff, you know, and then, oh, you know, like, well, then I need to talk to some moderate Republicans. So it's, and then, like, you know, by the time 30 minutes are up, I've talked to six people. And that's really taxing. And then, so what do I need to do before I go upstairs and file? I need to go to the basement and then go up to the press gallery and file, you know. Um, and that's... Uh, Actually, that, that touches on, on one of the other questions that we got for you, yeah. uh, which dives into that, is how you handle conferences and professional events, because you said that you also have to take breaks at those. Absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, and I need to recognize when my body is telling me and when my, my, my sense of when all of my senses are on fire, I need to slow down. It's like when your computer gets overheated. And, 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 I, and yeah, you do, need to, you do need to recognize that, like, no, you can't just be firing on all cylinders all the time um and and i you know there have been times where i've you know had to fire on all cylinders where that wasn't an option to take a break and then you know i paid dearly for it uh, or i needed to take extra time off after work um okay so hang on so right there um tell me if this has ever happened to you i in my professional life as a speaker i've gone to a lot of conferences and events 
I have found that if I don't take a 10 minute solo break every two hours, guaranteed by day two of the conference, I will actually have a breakdown and burst into tears. I usually make sure that I only am at a conference for one or two days, you know, um, so that I don't do that. But if I'm, you know, if I'm doing keynote address, you know, then afterward, then the next day I'm doing radio hits. Then next day I have to, you know, do my day job. Um, it will come crashing down. It will, it will be a problem. So, you know, one of the things that I'm fortunate in right now is that, you know, we're, we're in April right now. Thankfully right now, Congress is in recess. So that's kind of good because I can do a lot of these things and I'm not going to burn out. There've been times where, you know, our, you know, in April, in October of last year, from like September 15th to like election day, I don't know why, but we booked a lot of events for the book, you know, and on autism events, you know, last year when the paperback came out and it was also election time. So the day job took a look, you know, and, uh, and it, it damn near killed me. You know, what this reminds me of is, um, I wrote a book about 10 years ago, which I keep begging people to bloody well stop buying because it's 10 years old, but uh, which became a bestseller. It wasn't supposed to, it did great. The publicity tour, I often say of that book, it damn well nearly killed me because the publicity for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I don't think that other, uh, the only people who understood, I mean, I think the only people who understand that are fellow authors, you know, because I think a lot of people, you know, I think my mom and my stepdad and my mom, my, my, my brother, so I my step, my sister, I should say, and my, my, my dad, or they're like, um, you know, I don't have a brother, but like, my, you, you know, my, you know, they're like, yeah, you're having all the success. It must be incredible. I'm like, yeah, but like also, I mean, like, and I am grateful. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm more financially secure than I ever have been. It is great to know that I've done some good things and like my book has helped people, um, you know, but also it has been exhausting. And it takes a lot out of you. My friends who are authors understand that. But then I think it's really important. You know, but I don't think also people who are like, even my neurotypical author friends recognize how much that can take out of you if you're autistic. I heard once someone say writing a book is a soul crushingly lonely experience in a way that no one who has not written a, written a book can ever understand. Yeah, no, it, it was the most isolating experience in my life. And it was painfully lonely. Uh, when I was deepest into the book, I swear to God, I would eat book, breathe book, think there was nothing else in my head. And I felt like I was carrying the entire fucking book in my head, chapter by chapter. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a cloud over your head constantly. And, I, and like I should say, I finished the book uh, right when I had started a new job at the Washington Post and right when COVID was hitting. So like I was basically at home most of the, you, you know, I was finishing the book like, you know, during the worst days of the pandemic, you know, before there was a vaccine, like when we were all at home. And um, it was, uh, it was depression inducing. And then on top of that, I just recently quit drinking. So. Congratulations. Yeah. So like that was uh, a mind fuck in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, I was like, oh man, I can't even like, you know, have something to take the edge off, you know, you feel this arduous weight. I remember I turned in my manuscript on Christmas Eve, uh, final copy edited version. And I, and like, it felt that was the best Christmas present I could have ever had <laughs> was, was, was turning in my, was turning in my, uh, turning in my manuscript. 
Uh, I'm going to horribly paraphrase some great author who said, at first a book is a plaything with which you toy idly in an idle hour, then it becomes a demanding mistress, and finally becomes a monster that just about when you finally kill it and fling it to the public, you are finally free. Yeah, yeah, you know, I remember like, I was just like, when I, when I, when I, pressed send you know um I, I was i was like wow i did, did this you know i felt like frodo at the end of the lord of the rings where i was like it's over you know oh that's good that's very good that's excellent and you know what i i not to uh stereotypify uh autistics but i wonder what the overlap the venn diagram overlap is between tolkien fans and uh autism people oh it's probably a circle i'm just saying <laughs> i'm just saying i'm just saying now, personally, I'm more of a Terry Pratchett girl, but that's just me because I like the humor. Getting back to the actual questions that actual, you know, listeners actually asked, um, here's one that I think is is fabulous. Um, what is one thing that allistic, i.e. non-autistic people, uh, do that drives you batshit crazy? Oh, um, it's funny. My friend, my, my, my friend uh, Tara, who I'm like... Uh, I, you know, I don't know if she's autistic or neurotypical. I, I know she's not autistic. Let me just put it that way. She, she, she often jokes with me. She's like, she's like, does it really piss you off when uh, someone says to you, like, it's, this isn't that hard, you know? You, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's really fucking hard, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's really fucking hard for me, you know? Um, that's one. And then there's the classic, but you can't possibly be autistic. You're too social. Don't get me started on that. And, 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 and like, I mean, I think that like the reason why that pisses me off is like 90% of the time they actually haven't met an autistic person. They just heard about an autistic person or they hear that like their coworkers niece is autistic or they watched um, a really bad Netflix show that I'm not going to mention. Or Rain Man, and that's what they're still thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I have mixed feelings about Rain Man. I, I did a whole podcast talking about it, Rain Dragging Rain Man. I'm sure I don't know if you heard it. Um, it's on the podcast, You Are Good, which is started by the folks who started You're Wrong About. Uh, you can hear me dragging Rain Man for like two hours. But, uh, or, or, or you, know, you know, so I, I always kind of really don't like that instead of uh, someone disclosing that they're autistic and that affecting how somebody perceives autism, immediately when, when you disclose, instead, people bring their preconceived notions and they and they bring their judgments and they project them onto you. Like, like, like this is what I think about autism and not uh not saying not taking this new information and processing it and saying oh this in updating the information like oh this is how autism looks this is what autism looks like i i think that's one of the other things conversely i think the other one that that, that you know really uh chaps my ass is um is you know the concept of high functioning low functioning because like you know the point that i always make is like um you know i know plenty of non-speaking autistic people who uh, are in 
graduate school or sit on government boards or have graduated college uh, or, or, or have written you know, books and poems. And then I know, uh, quote unquote, high functioning autistic people who can speak, who have trouble holding employment. And my question is like, okay, who's the high functioning and who's the low functioning one there? Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of ableism and the difficulty finding employment. I think you know we can talk about that you know at great length, and I have talked about it at great length. Um, so, I mean, I think that oftentimes what happens is that I mean that's one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of function labels because I think that they uh, measure what non-autistic people see instead of what autistic people need. That's what that's I think one of the real reasons why I'm not a fan of those. Oh, that's a nice way of phrasing it. Yeah, it measures from the exterior instead of the interior. Um, the one that always, well, it doesn't piss me off because it gives me an opportunity to explain, but the, the first book I wrote was on charisma. And so everyone was like, you can't be autistic, you're worried about charisma. And my point is, no, you fucking idiot, sorry. Um, the reason I was able to break down charisma into its constituent parts is because I'm autistic. Like Bill Clinton can't tell you how he does that thing he does because it's natural, right? That is just who he is. But like, if you are an autistic person, and charisma is a foreign language to you, or what we define as charisma is a foreign language to you, then you're just going to naturally think about it more. You're going to consider it more. You're going to think about it. You're going you're gonna to analyze it more. You're going to think, like, what makes this, this work? I mean, I, I think about that a lot as a political journalist. How do you define it? How do you get, you know, how do you get, you know, uh, 80 million people to vote for you like President Biden did? How do you get... Uh, how do you get, you know, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time covering Trump rallies. Uh, you know, how do you get um, an entire rally of people on their feet and enraptured for two hours of meandering? Somebody's got to find this interesting and somebody's got to find this uh, captivating. And I, and I think that as, as, a, as a political, I think that that's one of those things you talk about, like the advantages. I think, think being able to take a step back and realizing that, like, I don't understand a lot. Of, I don't understand what makes, why someone finds something charismatic allows me to kind of view it from like three steps back and say like, okay, what is this? Now, there's one thing that really interests me is we were talking about um, the the experience, the need for uh, for clarity. So I grew up in Paris, and it's hard to think of any culture save Japan that would be worse for artistic people than France because everything is the unsaid, the subtext, the et cetera. Um, and you, you mentioned that it's so important for you in your work to get the clarity, the specificity. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, like, I mean, one of the things that I've said is that, like, you know, like, so when I talk to employers now, so, like, first I should say that, like, for long, for, like, early in my career, I didn't disclose I was autistic, not because I was ashamed so much, just as it was just, like, it's none of your fucking business. Um, uh, and, 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 it's just, and it's just, like, no, that's very, very private. You know, it's, like, it's, you know, like, you could ask me what my favorite college basketball team is. You could ask me what my favorite food is but you can't tell you can't like you you know i'm not going to tell you certain things you know uh that, that you know that's like asking who i sleep with you know so um so i i um very much was just like i wasn't ashamed of it but it was just like that's not your business that's not something you need to know but nowadays i think that like when i um uh, when i tell my bosses like now obviously when you google me you know that that's like the first thing that comes up i say like no, no i need like really explicit instructions like you need to tell me exactly what i need to do and like most people say like oh that's like 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 anybody else i was like no you need to actually like explain every little 
damn thing for me. Like, otherwise, I am going to screw this up. Like, you need to make this explicit text. Uh, and, and, and I think that uh, in the same way, like, with, um, I mean, because American culture, particularly, um, particularly, I guess you could say, um, wasp culture, if I may, is very much all based on hands and subtlety. So, like, I went to college in the South. You know, I went, I went to the University of North Carolina. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are unspoken. There's a lot of, you know, you know, winks and nods. And it's like, it makes it very difficult for um, for you if you're an autistic person. I remember I had a professor, and this is a story I write about in the book. I remember my, uh, when, I was, when I was a senior, um, I had a class called Southern Politics, where in my journalism major, where you had to write a column every week about Southern politics. And I remember my first assignment, I had a really tough time because I was trying to get my professor to explain really explicitly what I needed to do, get to, you know, how to do this. I turn it in, uh, literally like the week later as I'm waiting to come into class, um, my professor takes me into his office, he's like, come here. And I'm just like, and he closes the door. He says, okay, I just got to ask, do you have Asperger's? And, uh, and I was just like, and on one end, I wanted to punch him in the face. Um, the uh you know and, and i should say professors i think that's against the law like i think that's a violation of what is it ferpa uh you you know, or, or hipaa or whatever but uh but but on the uh, but my response was how'd you know and it turns out he had a very he had a loved one who was on the spectrum and uh he was and he just said like come to my office every week and we'll talk like i'm not gonna write the assignment for you but we'll talk about what you want to write about and so that was what i did and it and it and like but like when he instructed me, like this is how you do it, then I was able to do it. I I, I passed the class with like I think like an A minus or something like that. But it required them telling me exactly what to do, which I think is so counterintuitive for a lot of journalists because a lot of journalists it's like okay, well you gotta you know you gotta let yourself go where the story takes you, things like that. It's like no, like for me, whenever I'm writing something, I need to know explicitly what I'm doing. You know, like I mean, I mean, I know there's that great essay by Joan Didion where she says like I I, I write to know what I'm thinking. Um, that is not me. <laughs> Now, talking of uh, culture and understanding that, of course, there's national culture, subgroup culture, company culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I spent time in, well, France, the UK, Germany, Sweden, Peru, Buenos Aires. And it, it was really interesting seeing how different cultures were harder or easier for me to access. Um, what has been your experience of being autistic and Latino? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I should say that as you know, being Latino as, as a as a Latino activist in Arizona told me we don't even eat the same rice, so like you know we're not going to have the same culture. So I think that I think that we should we should say that there's no such thing as as I like to say to what different rice. Yeah, like we eat different types of rice. We eat different. We prepare. We cook our rice in different ways. You know. Um, but, but so, so I think we should say is that, as I like to say to my uh, Democratic and Republican friends in politics, there's no such thing as the Latino vote. There are Latino votes. I think this, and I think I should also recognize. I should also admit that, like I'm, as we were talking about this earlier, I'm third generation American. Uh, I don't speak fluent Spanish. I can get by, but I don't speak fluent Spanish. Um, uh, so, so like, let's lay those all out. I think that, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that for the longest time. Um, autism was seen as something that affected, um, 
largely upper middle class to upper class to higher socioeconomic status whites. The first studies, you know, you, you know, I, I live, I live in Washington D.C., so like about a two-hour Amtrak tra- train up to Baltimore, which is where the first studies on autism in America were done over at Johns Hopkins University uh, in 1943. The first one came out, and it's funny because the first, the the, the initial study, you know, the, the folks group that that Leo Connor did included nine white Anglo-Saxon kids and two Jewish kids, and it was funny because, um, you know, like if you know the history of Baltimore at the time. Baltimore wasn't wasps and Jews, just wasps and Jews. It was Poles, it was Italians, it was, you know, uh, it was the Irish. I mean, there were plenty of Jews, but more than just two Jews, you know. Uh, you know, it was a, it's a port city, you know. So, 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 you know, there's just a lot of people coming in at the time. Uh, so, I mean, I think that in the same, as a result, we've, we've thought of autism as a white person's thing. And what that has meant is that a lot of Latino cultures just don't know a lot about autism. Uh, they just don't understand it. It's just not part of their uh, their lexicon. It's not part of their working language. It's not something that's discussed a lot. And that's not necessary. It's nothing inherently to being Latino. It's just something that's not discussed because for the longest time, we didn't think it was a thing that, it, 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 that, that could happen. We just, we just didn't think that, that was something that that existed, like, you know, we weren't told about it. So I think that's the most important thing is that there's just a lack of understanding about, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that was interesting to me was that uh, a lot of people face the difficulty with stress, like a lot of non-white Hispanics. But the other thing that a lot of them have is that, is that they, is, um, a lot of Latino cultures just have a large misunderstanding about autism. So that just means that just, that's just a real big um, hurdle to climb during the diagnostic process. And on top of that, there's just not a lot of education. It's just not something that is discussed that much. And then on top of that, there is the language gap because a lot of uh, service providers and primary care pediatricians don't offer screenings in Spanish. That just makes it all the more difficult to diagnose them properly. And then there's the gender gap and... The gender gap, the, you know, the, the socioeconomic income gap, uh, all that. Okay, so, you know, my, my, um, my reflex, of course, this might be me being autistic, is always I see a problem. My first impulse is, okay, how do I fix this, right? So, so what can we, as um, autistic professionals who are in the workplace, what can we do to make things better for the next generation of autistics? You know, I think first and foremost is that, like, as we said earlier, like, we can't, we, we should demand that we have input whenever there are these kind of neurodiversity hiring initiatives or, or even push them ourselves. I think that's really important, making sure that we have our, our own input and our own say in all these things is incredibly crucial. Uh, that cannot be said enough. And then second, I mean, I think that representation has its limits, and I understand that. But I do think it's important for autistic people to see something, to see themselves in something. And to see themselves, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book and I and I and I discuss a lot is like the first time I ever saw someone autistic on television, I think, was uh, in the news, was uh, with the late Mel Bags, when Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN interviewed the late Mel Bags on uh, in like 2007. And it was like, uh, even though Mel was not speaking, I was obviously speaking, like I, I just couldn't stop watching. And then um, immediately after, I think like literally like an hour afterward, they had Larry King interviewing Jenny McCarthy. So like if you want to like, the, you know, uh, kind of talks, kind of shows how we 
like how bad media coverage was of autism. Like you had this really great humane portrayal of autism followed by Jenny McCarthy promoting um, bullshit. But I think that like obviously making, I think that there's something to be said for the longest time, especially because we see, we, 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 we see autistic people in STEM. We see autistic people a little bit more in finance now, but seeing autistic people who work in, you know, the automotive industry or working in media or working in anything, you know, like, I mean, I, God, for God's sakes, like I live in, I live in Washington, D.C. Like I cannot tell you how many friggin' people I know who probably work in like work for the Pentagon or work in law or work in work on Capitol Hill or on the spectrum, you know? Well, speaking of education, the way we're, we're brought up, one of the, um, the questions I found really interesting was someone who asked, um, what can teachers and school staff do to make school less traumatizing experience for autistic students? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good question. I think that that's obviously somebody who has the right intentions. It's really hard for me to say that, like, you know, obviously one thing is ending restraining seclusion is one of, like, one of the top things. And electroshocks, hello, Judge Rothenberg Center. Jesus. Um, though, you know, in the omnibus legislation, they gave Congress the authority to, they gave the FDA authority to ban uh, shock therapy. We'll see if the FDA actually goes through with it. Because they tried doing it under the Trump administration. They tried to ban it. We'll see if the, uh, you know, the FDA has obviously shown a willingness to, to, to get rid of this. So we'll see if they actually use it. I'm hoping that they use the authority to do that. But on the other hand, I, I, mean, I really think that it's one of those things that um, I know a lot of great teachers who want to do the right thing, but it's just that they don't have the resources. I think that the main thing is fully funding the IDEA or the federal government living up to its, uh, its commitment to fully funding the IDEA. So education, awareness, resources. Yeah, it's just a matter of resources. It's just a matter of the political will, you know, because like um, I, I, I – like, you know, because what a friend of mine said, a friend of mine asked me, one of my really good friends, my flatmate asked me, he's like, why don't you support, uh, allow, why don't, why not have the federal government fund 100% of IDEA? And my, my answer is like, well, because, uh, because states and localities still need some skin in the game. Like, you can't let them off the hook. You know, but like, the federal government should still spend something. Like, should still spend at least what they committed to. I mean, that, that, that's the problem. So I, I think more right now, it's just a lack of resources. Aside from reading your book, which I can highly recommend, it's bloody fantastic. Are there any other resources that you would recommend or where can people go to learn more about you? I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet way too much. You can follow me at Eric M. Garcia. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric M. Garcia 14. Um, you can, uh, I mean, you can always, uh, I mean, there are plenty of autism resources. I think the hashtags actually autistic and autistic asking autistics are really important. Uh, the neurodiversity hashtag is really important. Eric, thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your experience. I highly recommend you all check out Eric's book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. You can learn more about Eric by following him on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia and Instagram at Eric M. Garcia 14. Remember to follow the Autistic Advantage podcast on Instagram and LinkedIn for new episodes and to get your questions in for future guests. Our next guest is Emmis Olson, Global Innovation Lead, Food at Google. This episode will be released June 1st. That's it from the Autistic Advantage podcast. Our team includes production director Harvey Range, community director Ben Van Hook, creative director Kaya Williams, and I'm your host, Olivia Fox. See you next time.